All right, church, everyone watching online, in the lobby, in the VHQ, and in this room, it's good to be back. This is our third week in a row being back on Sundays, and last week we did something in the morning after our two morning services, uh, we had something called a group connect. And, and basically what that was is that was people who went to the weekender, and I'll tell you what that is in a second, but uh, people who went to the weekender, uh, which is how you kind of get connected and committed here, uh, those who went to the weekender but were not in a community group, we said, hey, we want you to get in a group. And so we had lots of people show up. And I just want to say thank you to the leaders who open up spaces in their groups. Uh, to the people who said, I'm going to leave my group and start a new group so that we can start new groups for new people. And here's what I want you to understand, whether it's your first time or fifth time or 50th time with us is that groups are not optional here. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I mean, I guess, I mean, you don't have to get in a group, I'm saying, but, but what I mean by that is if you are not in a group, you probably won't be here in a year. I mean, that's not a two cities thing. That's a church thing. Because once a room, I mean, look around here. Once a room gets bigger than 150 people or a church gets bigger than 150 people, this room is no longer the main place and point of connection in the church. It's a point. It's a place. And, and I would encourage you, a little side note here, come 10 minutes early, stay 10 minutes late, initiate three conversations, and you'll start feeling more connected here. But just so you know, once it gets over 150 people, it's the Sunday school or the small group that becomes the main place of connection. And guess what? In this season of our church, we're not saying never, but not now, we don't do Sunday school. And so we have small groups. And, and let me just tell you this, discipleship, real discipleship happens in small groups, happens in our community groups. And, and, and I'm talking about this because I care about you guys. And I can just, because I get, I get kind of a larger view of things sometimes, and I saw the difference between people who COVID hit and they were in a community group, and COVID hit and they weren't in a community group. And I'm just telling you, it's a big difference. Whether you had to Zoom your group in or whatever, there's a big difference going, hey, look, I'm, I'm connected and committed to people who know and love me and know and love God and know and love the Bible. And so you, we've said it before, you need community before the crisis, you need community during the crisis as well. So let me just say this, uh, if you have not been to a weekender, that's your next step. That's going to be in October. We got that October 23rd, 24th, 25th. Particularly, guys, if you're, I know this is a, a service with a lot of college students. Let me just say this, if you are a college student, we want to get, we want you to get connected. Get connected early in the life of your, in your, in your college life. Uh, if you've been to a weekender, we want to help you take your next step to get connected to a group. So let me just pray for those two areas, because what we see long-term is that discipleship happens in relationships. And Christianity doesn't, don't think of Christianity as that which happens in rows. Right now you look around, you're in rows. Christianity happens in circles when we're shoulder to shoulder, face to face, look, opening up our Bibles and opening up our lives. So let's, let's pray for our groups, ministry. Let's pray for the people taking their next step in the weekend. And we're almost, this next weekend is almost full already. So many of you have already responded, but we are just super excited about what God's doing. And let's take a moment to pray before we dive into the book of Exodus. Pray with me. Lord, I want to pray right now for our community group leaders. Lord, I just thank you for the leaders who made a decision to open up their groups and welcome new people in. Lord, I thank you for groups that were started where a husband and a wife left their current group that they loved to start other groups. Lord, and I pray that there would just be a commitment in our church to fight to find a good community group. We realize that it's gonna, sometimes it's got to be on a certain night, and we're looking for a certain age and stage, and we want it to be in a certain part of our city, Lord. But for the overall health of our church and the individual health of individual Christians, we need to be connected to, to meaningful relationships and connected groups. Lord, we pray for people who, who have yet to be connected and committed that people would take their next step. I thank you for all the people who did a week and a half ago and all the people who will uh, this coming weekend during October. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new, uh, we are in a book called Exodus. Type two, turn two, flip two, you know, whatever. The book of Exodus, we're in chapter three. And as you're turning there, a little intro. 
I say this all the time, but what we do in here is not obvious to the world. Why are, why are you here? You know, we're looking at a 3,500-year-old book about a bunch of Jews in the Middle East. It's never obvious why we're spending 40 or 50 minutes once a week talking about this book. It's because we have a deep conviction that the Bible is the Word of God, and it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. And the reason we're in the book of Exodus is it's one of those books that kind of helps us see the larger plan and purposes of Scripture. Let me give you an example. Uh, one of the ways to think about Scripture is this. God's people, in God's place, in God's presence. So think about that. I mean, actually, I mean, walk through Scripture with me. What is, what's happening in the garden, Adam and Eve? God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the garden, it, with God's presence, walking with them. What happens when sin comes into the world? Well, God's people need to leave God's place in God's presence. How does the book of Exodus start? God's people, Israel, are not in God's place. They're in Egypt. And so God's people need to get to God's place, the promised land, and be in God's presence, the tabernacle. That's why the book of Exodus doesn't end at the Exodus 20 with the law. It ends at Exodus 40 with the tabernacle. And then think about the whole, some of you, I mean, some of you know the Bible better than others. Think about the whole scope and sequence of scripture. It's moving to the book of Revelation. What's the book of Revelation about? God's people, the church, in God's place, heaven, in God's presence, worshiping him face to face. And so we're going to continue to see that theme unfold. And I want to tell you that because I don't want us to, to get lost in, in the trees and miss the whole forest. And so with that said, I want us to turn to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to cover the whole chapter together tonight. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Now Moses, and I'm going to just stop there. We're going to cover this, the whole chapter. We're going to stop with those two words for now, okay? Because uh, I want to say a couple things about Moses. Moses has got three 40-year periods in his life. Um, the first 80 years are in chapters in chapter two, okay? And, and this is helpful because the way Moses' life is, is the way that some of your lives will be, okay? You, you might have more phases than that. Moses has three phases to his life. He has the first 40 years. Many of you, this is actually a young service. Many of you, you're kind of in that early season of your life. You're in medical school. You're in grad school. You're getting your undergrad. You're getting married. You're, you're excited. Everything's building. Everything's growing. Everything's going well. That, that's actually Moses' first 40 years. Pharaoh's house, great education, great job, lots of discretionary time, lots of discretionary income. And then what happens is he does something sinful and stupid, okay? He kills another man in, in the heat of passion, and he ends up in Midian. Midian is a way to basically say, I'm in the wilderness. I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know where I am anymore. And guess what? That's going to happen. That has happened to some of you. That will happen to some of you. It, it tends to happen because you've done something sinful, or somebody you love and is connected to has done something sinful. I mean, I, I promise you, almost every week, certainly every month in this church, somebody reaches us out to us by phone or email and basically says, I'm in Midian. My husband did this, my wife did this, my kids did this, I've had this addiction, it was brought up and exposed at work, and I've lost my job, and I've, my, I might have lost my marriage, and I might have lost my kids, and I don't know where I am. And believe me, more people than you know feel like that. that that's called the land of Midian, and when you're in Midian, you need a Jethro. You need some kind of mentor to invest in you and help you get out of that and to restore you and to reconcile you. And that's what Jethro is. And then Moses now is in the last, today we make the transition to Moses' last 40 years. And it's the 40 years where God's actually going to use him the greatest. And that's, that's actually true in a lot of people's lives. See, see, we have this kind of obsession with youth culture. Oh, you know, I don't want to get old. I don't want to have gray hair. I, you know, I don't want to age. It's like, actually, the Bible talks a lot about the elderly. Talks a lot about the dignity of maturity, and the church actually should be. This is why you want a multi-generational church. You want the wisdom of the old with the strength of the young. That's what you want. And so we pick up with Moses in chapter 3, verse 1. 
It says this, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. Jethro is a great guy. We won't talk about him again, but we talked about him last week. The priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. So here's what you need to know about Moses. Moses is not, from, from what, how he would have been raised and what would have been expected of him, he does not have a great job right now. The Egyptians did not respect and did not think being a shepherd was a good job. Uh, you're talking about a, a, a low-paying, uh, no breaks, no vacation, blue-collar job. That's what he's working. Okay, but it's interesting because he's, he's a shepherd. And I don't know if you guys have ever, have you ever had a job that you've hated? Okay, I've had a few jobs that I've hated. Thank, thankfully, this is not one of them, okay, right now. Um, I've had a few jobs. I remember my dad. And I, got the, I just have such a great dad, I really do. I mean, I've got, I've got zero father wound in my life. You know, I just have the greatest dad. And, uh, and my dad, though, one time he calls me up. And uh, I'm coming home, freshman year of college. And he says, one of my clients, my dad's in financial advising. He says, one of my clients uh, wants to hire you for the summer. I said, well, praise the Lord. And he said, uh, he said yeah, this was 20 years ago. He said, uh, it's $10 an hour. I said, well, that sounds great. $10 an hour, 20 years ago. And, oh, and, and, and you can work Monday through Friday. Oh, this is awesome. Well, my dad didn't know or didn't tell me. Okay, we don't know. To this day, we can talk about it. But um, well, it was that it was basically, it was a second shift job that was 4 till 1 a.m., 4 p.m. to 1 a.m. And I, I worked in a fridge. I, it was a massive warehouse fridge, and all I did was load a dock eight hours a day, five days a week, and when I wasn't in the fridge, I was in the freezer. I promise you. It was, I hated my job. But it taught me a lot of lessons, taught me a lot of lessons about life. I met a lot of interesting people that also hated their jobs. Um, it really, well, it was an interesting, but you can learn a lot doing a job you don't like. Well, M Moses, he, it's interesting, he ends up being a shepherd of sheep before he ends up leading God's people as a shepherd of sheep. Because the Bible calls us sheep. So he's gonna lead sheep before he leads us through the wilderness, uh, leads the Jews, uh, Israel through the wilderness. And, and that's interesting because you know, the Bible talks about us as sheep. And, and if you, I think I've told some of you this before. Um, being called a sheep is not a compliment. They are dumb, defenseless, and dirty. Okay, that's, that's what a sheep is. Okay, they are so dumb, they will walk off of a cliff and follow other people off of a cliff. They, I mean, there's records of that. We read, that, we read Psalm 23, and it's like, the Lord will lead me beside still waters. Yes, because you are a sheep, and you are so dumb, you would fall in if they weren't still, and you would drown. That's what that psalm is actually about. They, they are so defenseless. They are the, one of the only animals that has no fight or flight mechanism. Zero. When something happens, they're like, ugh. I mean, that's it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they do, okay? And they're, they're one of the only animals that can't clean itself. And so I really believe that God created sheep to make a spiritual point about us. And so what we see is this is interesting. And this is a very big theme in scripture, right? What does God do in the New Testament? What does Jesus do? He picks a bunch of guys who are fishermen and says, you're going to be fishers of men now. He, he, he says, you don't even realize, well, this is what we call ordinary providence. Ordinary providence is, you don't even realize how I'm you know, working in your marriage and working in your academics and working in your genetics and working in your parents and working in your ups and downs. You don't even know. It's called ordinary providence. It happens all day, every day. Ordinary providence is how God cares and controls for your life, how he moves everything toward your good and his glory, which is so, such a deep idea. Your, your, your maturity and his mission, everything in your life's working toward that. You have no idea how that's all working. So that's ordinary providence, and that happens in Moses' life. But what we're going to see is in verse 2, extraordinary providence happens. Ordinary providence is, oh, wow, I look back and I, I can kind of see it. Extraordinary providence is that moment where you're like, that was a God moment. You know? She walked across campus right as I was walking across campus. You know, kind of like, I just knew I was, that's kind of what we call a God moment, okay? You just, you're like, okay, she doesn't think it's a God moment, but you do, okay? Um, no, but, but so, what's interesting here is, in verse two, I want you to see this. Here, here's what it says, verse two. 
says this, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. So extraordinary providence. Out of the midst of a bush, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So this is going to be a moment of extraordinary providence. Now, let me just tell you a little bit of the story of our churches. We have been a church with mostly ordinary providence. It's like God's brought great people and He's used the preaching of the word and the discipling of people and the singing of songs and the discipling of relationships, and, and he's grown our church. But along the way, we've seen what we would call extraordinary providence every once in a while. Like, for example, when we were, some of you are here for that, when we were at Goaler at night, we needed a bigger building. And we met with some guy in our city who's supposed to know about all the buildings. And he was on his computers, and we were talking to him. He's a Christian guy, and we said, help us. We need, you know, over 10,000 square feet of buildings, and it needs to be downtown, and it needs to be cheap. And when he was done laughing, we, we said, okay, no, no, seriously, this is what we need. And, uh, and he, he looked up on his computer and all his programs, and he goes, there's nothing in our city like that. He said, I've got access to everything. I've got access to everything that's been in the past. I've got everything that's coming in the future. There's nothing like it, but let's pray about it. Well, the next day he calls us. He says, I plugged the things in wrong. I didn't, there, there was one uh, property that I saw that was actually both two buildings that are both each 8,000 feet, square feet. And when we put them together, it's over 10,000 square feet, and it's right in downtown. We're in them right now. That's these buildings, okay? <laughs> they want to ruin the story for some of you. That's these buildings, okay? Um, and uh, and so, so we go, and we're like, well, I don't know what the owner's going to say. So we go to the owners. We meet them, and we're like, you know, you don't know what people are going to, you know, people love churches. People hate churches. People love pastors. People hate pastors. Um, and so, you know, we, we walk up to them, and, you know, Pastor Dave and I, and it's like, you know, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and we're like, hey, guys, uh, Pastor Kyle here, you know, we're thinking, what do you guys, could we have a church here, you know? And um, the one guy says, you know what, that's so interesting that you're coming to me today. I just finished reading J.D. Greer's book, The Gospel. And I thought, extraordinary providence, you know? And we just saw the Lord continue to work things together where we were able to get into this facility and do it with somebody. One of our partners was a gospel-believing brother. It was just an incredible story of extraordinary providence. That's what we see with, with, with Moses today. We move from ordinary providence, God's using everything in my life, to extraordinary providence, God creates a God moment. And, and we have this, uh, let me read it one more time and make some comments here. It says this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So who's this angel of the Lord? People have lots of questions. The angel of the Lord um, talks as God, not about God. He's different than an angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord is Michael or Gabriel or, you know, they're ministers and messengers. They show up all over. They're, they're a lot in the New Testament, right? When Jesus is born, you see lots of angels. This is the angel of the Lord, which he accepts worship and speaks as God. Many believe this, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. He shows up and there's a burning bush. And you go, well, why a burning bush? Well, we don't know. Some people say, is it a picture of Israel not being consumed in the fiery trial they're in? Maybe. You know, is it a thorn bush? And it's, it's a way to say that God's reversing the curse of the thorns and thistles in, in Genesis 3. People debate and discuss that. Here's what we know. We know why it's fire. Because fire is a perfect, it's, not, it's one of the helpful metaphors for what God's like. What is fire? Inviting and terrifying. Right? It's like, you know, this is the time of year where we're like, we just love, right? I mean, some of you, it's like as soon as it got below 70 degrees, you're turning your fireplace on. You're like, fireplace time, you know? We just love it. Right? How many of us want to be outside at night, invite our friends over to be around the fire pit. I mean, we just, there's something about fire that is incredibly inviting. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just a guy thing. Guys will just sit around a fire and just look at it. I don't know what we're, I don't know what we're doing, but it, we'll just look at the same fire for hours. We won't make eye contact with each other. We'll just be looking at this fire. You know, it's true. So you got this kind of, this kind of thing with fire, but then it's also terrifying. Like what's going on? You know, all this stuff that's going on in California, there's a lot going on in California, but one, one of the things is all these fires, right? Because fire, think about this, fire under control I mean, it's, humanly speaking, it's why we're here. 
because our ancestors had fire under control, that's why they didn't freeze and starve. Thank God for fire. We don't even realize that anymore because our life is so air conditioning and heating and all this, and we have ovens, and it's like fire was the answer to don't freeze and eat. I mean, that, that was the answer for a long time. Fire is also terrifying, right? Fire is that which destroys and which can kill. So it's this, this beautiful picture of that, and God, God will actually use fire a lot. First time he appears to Abraham, fire, a fiery pot. What is he going to be for the rest of Israel? I'm going to be a cloud by day and fire by night. So Moses, look at verse three. Moses turns aside. Here's what it says. Verse three. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So here's what's happened here. And this is interesting. This is the back and forth. You know, the whole question, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Does God initiate? Do we respond? Yes. That's the answer, okay? It's, like, it's both. Because what you see here is, um, what happens here is that God is going to put in place and position himself where Moses can see him as a burning bush. But look what it says in verse three. I want you to see this. It's, or verse four, it says this. When the Lord saw that he, Moses, turned aside, God called to him. So there's almost like this idea of like, well, what would have happened? I mean, this is a fair question. What would have happened if Moses never turned aside? You know, I think if it was us today, we might not have seen it. We've been scrolling on social media. We would have missed it completely. <laughs> Burning bush off to the side and we completely miss it. Tur turning aside is a commitment to slow down, to stop. Now today, does God give us a burning bush? No, he gives us a Bible. <laughs> it's like, where does God speak to us today? Not a burning bush, but the Bible. Do, do we slow down? Like I think about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher of the 1800s, he said, no Bible, no breakfast. That, that was kind of his thing. He's like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn aside first thing in the morning. Before I have breakfast, I'm having Bible. I, I, I've heard others say things like, scripture before screens. What would that look like? And, and here's just, here, what are we doing tonight? One of the things we're doing tonight that this arises out of scripture is we're turning aside together. Sunday looks different. It's the one day a week. God's people corporately together turn aside and say, God, we want to hear from you. I, I think you uniquely have something to say. The reason that we push and talk about community groups, it's another time in a smaller environment during your week. It looks different than any other night of your week. Every other night may be crazy. Every other night, you may be at home watching TV. It's the one night a week you say, you know what? I'm going to turn aside with 10 or 15 or 20 people, and we're going to look at the word of God together. The reason we talk about, you know, what have Christians always done? Christians have always spent time in personal worship, personal devotions. What is that? Whether it's five minutes or 50 minutes, what does it look like for me to turn aside? To stop, to slow down, to stare, not at the bush, but at the Bible. And that's where God begins. That's where everything changes in this story. Look what happens in verse five. Here's what verse five says. Then he said, this is God. And this is interesting. You gotta take this whole, we've heard these stories. Some of us have heard these stories so many times. Part of what's difficult tonight is hearing them for the first time, hearing them fresh. And so imagine this, there's this burning bush and you see it and you start to move near it. And then you hear Moses, Moses, and you're like, okay, you hear your name and you move closer. And this is the next thing God says. Look at verse five. Then he said, then God said, do not come near. Isn't that interesting? You see that image of fire again. It's like, it's inviting, but there's a warning. You're not ready. You can't come as you are. This is a big teaching in Christianity. You cannot come to God as you are. You look what he says. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So what he's going to do here is he, he says, take off your sandals, which, which 
You know, what that meant back then, that was a, that was a way to, in Middle Eastern culture, it still is. If you go, I've been to India, I've been to Asia, uh, or been to, been to China, you go to these places, and, they, and if you go inside anywhere, a sign of respect is that you take your shoes off, particularly because of how, just how, honestly, how dirty it is outside. So it's, it's this whole kind of idea of communicating respect, but here's the bigger idea that we're learning in Scripture. God is holy. Do you see that right there? He says, the, gra- the, land, the ground that you're stepping on is holy. Why? Because I'm here. What does it mean that God's holy? Whenever we think of holy, we think of like, this is what Americans think of. This is even what American Christians think of. When you hear holy, when I hear holy, what I tend to think of is uptight with lots of rules and no fun. I mean, that's what I think about. I'm like, please don't call me holy. I mean, you know, I would almost be an insult if you called me. That would be based on how people think about it today. But what holy means is I'm set apart, I'm unique, I'm different. That's what it means. It means God is more unlike you than like you. God is not a bigger, smarter version of you. That's not who God is at all. So God's saying, hey, I'm completely different, and you can't come into my presence as you are. Like, it reminds me, if you've ever seen the show Chernobyl, by the way, IMDb says one of the greatest shows in the history of TV. It's kind of a docu-series that, that, that's, that shows you what happened in 1986 in the Soviet Union. When this, and I don't understand nuclear stuff, okay, but basically this nuclear reactor, you know, explodes and, and it's got this nuclear power all over this area and they bring in all these scientific experts and at one point they need i can't get into the whole story of it, but they need like four or five guys to go like underneath it several stories underneath this reactor and do some things and when you see the fear in these guys eyes and what they have to suit up for just to go a hundred feet under this nuclear reactor for like an hour and there's this interesting scene when they go under the nuclear reactor the right-hand man to the scientist looks at him and goes, what's going to happen to them? And he said, they'll be dead in a week. He said, I've just denied, delayed the inevitable. Listen to this, you can't spend that much time with that much energy and that much power and be okay. It didn't matter what they put on themselves. That you cannot stand in front of that much energy and that much power and not be overwhelmed and destroyed by it. And we think we could stand before the living God as we are. It's just this amazing picture. You realize this is why we need Christ. There's nothing we could wear or take off that makes us okay. We need somebody else to stand for us. That's the whole idea of Christ as our substitute, Christ in our place. And Moses is learning this, but then he's learning another principle. Look at verse six. Verse six says this. And he said, this is God speaking, I am the God of your father. Now, that's got to be comforting. Your dad loved and worshiped me. I'm just telling you, you want to make it easy for your kids to worship God, you go ahead of them. So that when they're older, they go, you know, I've got some questions, but dad walked with God. Why not I? And so he says, I'm the God of your dad. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. And he was afraid to look at God. What we see in verses five and six is this tension in scripture. And scripture gives us a lot of tensions to manage, that we have to manage them. That we hold these things, you know, when the Bible says two things, I don't believe the Bible ever contradicts itself. When the Bible says two things that seem to contradict itself, I believe them both at the same time. So God is above us and God is among us. That's what it's telling us. God is above us, that's holiness. God is among us, that's I'm the God of your dad. And I'm the God of the th- three of the worst guys in the Old Testament. Don't think, I mean, we could go back into Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're not great guys. What's God saying? I'm the kind of God that associates with the worst of people. I'm the kind of God that's going to show up as Jesus Christ and be called a friend of sinners. That's just who I am. 
It's this incredible picture that God's above us and that God's among us. This is why it's like, well, why do we talk about Jesus? Why is he fully God and fully man? Because he's both above us and among us. The, the theologically liberal churches, and there's lots of them in our city, they emphasize the humanity of Christ, but not the divinity of Christ. The human, hey, why don't we just love people? Why don't we just serve people? Why don't we just give everyone a hug? And why don't we just, I mean, look at Jesus. He's just such a, he's kind of like a 1970s hippie who drives a Prius. I mean, that's kind of how they view Jesus. They don't look at any of his teaching or anything. The, the independent fundamental churches, the more theolo- the super theologically conservative churches, they, which we would tend to be more in that tribe, they would more focus just on the divinity of Christ. He's risen, he's reigning, he's returning, repent, there's a coming judgment. All that's true, but it's like, yeah, but he's also been tempted in every way like us. He also was born as a baby. He also suffered. He's God with us. He's Emmanuel. And so what, what, what Moses is being introduced to for the first time in his life is this God that is theologians call transcendent above us and imminent with us. God is ultimate and he's intimate. And it's, it's this bigger picture of God that's going to give Moses his first mission. And this is an interesting thing to see. What God will do is he will reveal himself and then reveal his mission. Then he'll reveal more of himself, then he'll reveal more of his mission. Then he'll reveal more of himself, then he'll reveal more of his mission. So he just revealed himself. Now look what happens in verse seven. He reveals more of his mission. It says this, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And this is, this is a longer summary of what was said at the end of chapter two. At the end of chapter two, it basically says, you know, God saw, God knew, God heard, God remembered, okay? Um, here, God's, God's speaking for himself saying this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. See, that's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is God was above us, but he came to be among us. We could not save ourselves. That's religion. We couldn't climb up to God. God had to come down to us. It says this, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. By the way, that doesn't mean there was milk and honey everywhere. <laughs> Here's what that means. There were cows and bees everywhere. That's actually what that means. But it was going to be a place that could produce milk and honey if they would own it and have dominion there. Anyway, so he says, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Look at verse nine. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So again, think about this with me. Think of this as you. And let's do a little thought experiment. Say tonight, service ends, you walk out to your car and your car is on fire. Some of you would say, oh, thank God. <laughs> I can call State Farm, get a new car. No, no. Now, imagine your car is on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's like, all right, that's kind of different. And then you hear, Tom, Tom, You're like, oh, um, take off your shoes. You're like, all right, you know, taking your shoes off. You kind of feel goofy in the parking lot. And God, and God says, all right, I'm going to reach this rebelliously and religiously lost city called Winston-Salem. And I am going to, I'm tired of being so belittled here. And I'm going to make myself famous in this city. And people will sing my praises on Trade Street and on Liberty Street. And I'm going to make myself known on all the earth. Now, think of that. Okay, now imagine you're a college student. You come out of Wake Storm or Salem College's dorm or UNC School of the Arts or something. And again, your car's on fire. And you're like, oh, this is strange. You know, and, and they say, Jessica, Jessica. And you're okay, you take your shoes off and same thing. Take your shoes. Okay, and he says, all right, I'm going to reach Wake Forest University. And I'm going to, every person is going to sing my praises in those dorms. And in fact, some of the professors are going to give their lives to Christ. 
And it's actually going to become a seminary to train future missionaries and ministers. I mean, genuinely, a question that you could ask in both of those situations, and that Moses, I bet, is thinking up until this point is, why are you talking to me? Like, go, God, go get them. Yeah, you just told me everything that you're going to do. Whether it's at Wake, Wake Hospital or Novon Hospital or Wake Campus or in the city or in my neighborhood, you told me, and that's awesome. And then God kind of flips the table, right? It, it's interesting, God knows what he's doing. Look what he says in verse 10. He doesn't say this first. He gives a big vision first, and then, he, and then he says, you can be a part of it. Look at this. Verse 10, come, I will send you. Wow. Don't ever believe that missions and sending is a New Testament idea. It is, but it's more than that. It's an Old Testament idea. From Abraham on, we see the sending of God's people into the world to be a blessing. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He tells them two things. You have a mission and you have an enemy. These are both really, really important. So you have a mission and you have an enemy. Now, this is really interesting. God actually is basically saying, I have a mission that I want you to be a part of, right? God doesn't so much have a mission for his church as he has a church for his mission, if that makes sense. He has a larger mission that he's saying, I would love to incorporate you in this mission. And he says, you have a mission and you have an enemy. Now, that's really, really helpful, right? It's like, and I don't, every time I talk about depression and anxiety, I know there's a biological, uh, when you talk about these things, there's a the biological component, which I don't understand. And then there's the biblical component, which I do understand, okay? So sometimes people are depressed for all these biological reasons I don't know. Sometimes people are depressed for biblical reasons, like they have no mission in their life. I mean, think about it. You know, if, you're, if you're on the campus, Wake Forest campus, he's like, Here, here's what you're told. Uh, you came from nobody. You're an accident. Chance. Uh, you're here for no purpose, and when you die, you go nowhere. It's like, well, uh, 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 uh. So then when it, ends, I, when it becomes too painful, then I quit. I mean, that's, that's the logical conclusion of that. So it's like, you need to have a clear mission. It's like, I, okay, how about this mission? God wants to be made famous in all the world and would like to use you to be an image bearer of him for as long as you're willing. It's like, well, that'll get you up in the morning, if anything will. And then you have an enemy, you know? And that's really helpful, because it's like, well, you know, the other political party is not your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your coworker is not your enemy. Your boss is not your enemy. You have way too small of a view of what an enemy is. You have a way bigger enemy in life. By the way, I actually think this is why, you know, men particularly, young men, teenage boys, college students, young, young men in their 20s and 30s, um, you, I've read more about this, heard more about this. Lots of them are completely addicted, not to pornography, they're probably addicted to that too, but they're completely addicted to video games. And I'm not saying all video games are wrong. Why, why, would, why would a young man be completely addicted to video games? Well, you gotta think of this at a deep level, like what's there? Like why would a guy play Call of Duty for six hours and not take, like, I mean, you have, you have parents complaining about their sons not showering and eating because of how often and, and how they're just sleeping on the couch and playing video games, why? Because there's something deep in them that wants an enemy that they've got to fight against and wants a mission that they want to be a part of. No one's ever said there's actually, get off your goofy game. There's a real enemy, there's a real mission, and God wants you to be a part of it. And so that's what he says. He says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Look at verse 11. But Moses said, and we're going to dive more into the excuses next week. <laughs> but Moses, just like, it's like, well, why does, you go, no, you wouldn't make excuses, you would make excuses, okay? Moses makes excuses. Here's what it says. But Moses said to God, he gets real spiritual like you and I am. Well, who am I? I haven't prayed about this. I don't feel called. 
says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I will be with you. By the way, number one command in scripture, do not fear. Number one promise associated with that command, I will be with you. He says this, and this shall be the sign for you. This is interesting, that I have sent you. You're going to get the sign afterwards, not beforehand. When you have brought this people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, and, and if I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, this is a deep question. And I'm going to try to explain this. So, so Moses basically says, God, what's your name? And I don't know if you ever thought of this. Does God have a name? And, and follow me for like Hebrew 101, and, and I'm the last person that should be teaching Hebrew 101, believe me, with, with my grade in Hebrew in seminary. But anyway, um, but basically there is the Hebrew word Elohim, which simply means God. And that's a title, not a name. So title pastor, name Kyle. He's like, I know your title, God, but the problem, right, the problem is then is the same problem now. G-O-D is maybe the most misunderstood word in the English language. I mean, you could imagine if we went downtown and we randomly polled 100 people about what does God mean to you? It's like, well, who knows what they would say? Probably 115 different answers. I mean, just, just going to be a lot of different answers because people don't, I mean, so to some people, you say God, they think ATM in the sky. They think, you know, pinata right? Uh, you talk to others, they think like righteous judge and fearful. You talk to others, it's like, you know, the, the crazy landlord who shows up once a month and wants rent. I mean, it just depends. On, people have a bunch of different ideas of what God's like. And so Moses is like, hey, look, in fact, this is going to be another big theme in Exodus is people don't know who God is. And so God exalts himself over all the other gods. We'll get into this in weeks to come. But in the plagues, you're like, why 10 plagues? What's that all about? That's about God confronting the main gods of that day, the God of the air and the God of the sea. And the God, you know, that's what God's doing. We'll get into that. But uh, what he's doing today is he's going to say, so God, will you tell me your name? And this is an incredible answer that God gives in verse 14. God said to Moses, and he gives him basically three names. It's all the same thing, three different ways. Uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. So what does that mean? We'll talk about it. He says, I am who I am. That's the longest version of God's name. I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am, that's a shorter version of it, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, and, and in your Bible, anytime the word Lord is in all caps, it's the word Yahweh. That's God's name. So later in Exodus, he'll say, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. That, I am Yahweh, your God. That's what he's saying. And in fact, this was such a sacred name for the Jews. You know, we don't take things seriously like people have in past centuries. They wouldn't even write the name out. So they would write Y-H-W-H, no vowels, because they didn't want to write God's name. They thought they weren't worthy to write God's name. So actually, we don't even know if we're pronouncing it correctly, because we don't know what vowels should go in there. It's our best guess that it's something like Yahweh. And here's what he says. He says, say, verse 15, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, which literally actually means he is. So that's the shortest form because it would have been weird for Moses to go, I am. <laughs> so he sends him to say, God simply is. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he has sent 
me to you. This is my name forever, and I am to be remembered through all, throughout all generations. Now, this is amazing. God is focusing on himself, telling us this, that he is the ultimate reality in the world. That's what I am who I am means. It means that I exist. It means a couple things. First, it means I exist and I define myself. We live in a culture where everybody wants to define God. Well, I feel like God is. It's like, I mean, respectfully, who cares what you feel like God is? I mean, I, I mean, because what, what that ends up being is it ends up being God thinks like me. He thinks like a 21st century millennial. Isn't that awesome? On all the social issues and everything, it's really cool. It took God a long time, but he got to the exact same place that we're at right now as man. He doesn't think any differently than me, which is great because when I read the Bible, that he doesn't confront me. It's also great because I don't have to change. You know, God made us in his image, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since, right? We're trying to make him in our image. The second thing he says is, if I am who I am, it's a statement of that God is the eternal now, God is the eternal present, God is everywhere, always, God is completely dependable. The biggest idea here is that everything exists for God. I mean, have you ever thought about how many things we have not even seen or discovered as humans yet that God made for himself? I mean, there are like so many sea creatures at the bottom of the ocean that we've never discovered. And we discover them every once in a while, like, oh wow, that's been there for thousands of years. It's like, yeah, for God. That animal was created for God, not for you, ultimately. It's a deep thought to think everything that God made is ultimately for himself, for his purposes, but that God is so gracious that he would share it all with us. So he gives us this incredible view of himself, and then he gives us more mission. Look, he gives him more mission in the next verse. Verse 16, he says this, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Verse 17, and I promise, God loves to make promises and then fulfill them. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18. And they will listen to your voice. What an encouragement. The church will hear you. They're going to believe the word of God. That's what Christians do. Christians at the deepest level say, I believe what God has said. That's the defining mark of a Christian. He says this. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, and that's Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So here's what he does. This is really interesting. This is how I think things still work today. Moses meets with the Lord by himself. And the Lord says to Moses, basically, I need you to tell the church what I'm gonna do before you go out and go into the culture and do it. It's like, this is, this is the, the beginning of Sunday services, in some sense. It's like, well, you know, what are we doing tonight? It's like, we're reminding each other of who God is, of what the gospel is, and what the mission is. It's like, that's basically what we do every time we gather on Sundays. It's like, why? It's like, well, because you and I forget, right? Martin Luther, he's this famous preacher in the 1500s. His church used to say to him, uh, you know, because they would basically, back then, they would have church like five days a week. And uh, they would say to him, um, you know, Martin, why are you preaching the gospel to us every day? And he goes, well, simple, because every day you come in here looking like someone who doesn't believe the gospel. <laughs> he said, and, and, until you come in here looking like people that are amazed at the gospel, 
and amazed at who God is and amazed at what God has done and amazed at the mission that you're part of. I'm gonna keep, keep preaching the gospel to you so that you, because we, we're so prone to forget. So he calls the church together, the, really the elders back then. It, w- it would have been the leaders. Hey, I'm gonna tell you so you can tell your family so everybody knows. So the, and, and it gets a great encouragement, right? This is what Sunday is in many ways is a great encouragement. That, that's because it's, I'm gonna read you something in a second that's not encouraging. And, and the more that you decide to be evangelistic and to, to publicly identify with Christ among your coworkers and among your classmates and among your neighbors and among your friends and among your family, the more sweet Sundays will be for you. I promise you. Because you're gonna be like, well, it was hard this week. And I felt like the minority in my workplace and I feel like I'm trying to follow Christ and it's hard and I'm trying to fight sin and it's hard. And this is the place where I feel like I get encouraged. And I feel like I get challenged. And I feel like though we're you know, all different here and from different walks of life, we have the same Lord, we have the same faith, we have, so, we have way more in common than we would ever have that would divide us. So Sundays become incredibly sweet. So he basically gives them this great word of encouragement before he's gonna have to go to Pharaoh and, and, and basically share the gospel with the most difficult person on earth. And then what happens, look at verse 19. He says this, but I know that the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So what God does is he basically says, I want you to have the right expectations. Ministry and mission and mercy are going to be very hard and very few people will believe. It's like, that doesn't sound incredibly encouraging, but you you look back, it's like, if you ever read the call of Isaiah, we all love that call, the train of his robe fills the temple and and, and Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And and God sends to his people and and, uh, and God says, Moses goes, what do you want me to do? Or Isaiah goes, what, what do you want me to do? And he goes, preach to him. And he goes, are they going to believe? No. How long do you want me to do this the rest of your life? Are they ever going to believe? No. It's like, none of us signed up for that ministry, right? <laughs> to preach to people who will never understand and never believe. The, the, now, we, on the other side, we can get to this. We'll get to this toward the end. We, we have this great hope that there will be, that God has people in every city, that people will believe. I, I can promise you, people are going to believe in Winston-Salem. People are going to believe on the university campuses. We, we just have to be faithful. I know we're, we're often afraid. We have to be faithful to share the gospel. I've got a friend. I didn't share this story in the first two services. I just can't even right now. We'll see how this goes. Um, but but I, I was reminded of this. I had a friend recently call me, a friend from college. This happened a couple weeks ago. And he just had recently felt challenged to share the gospel in his workplace. And I, I, it's an unbelievable story. He calls me because he's so excited. I've not talked to him in a couple years. And he's telling me about all these people that he's led to Christ. And he said, you know, he said, this is so interesting. I'm going to try to get this right. He said to me, he said, you know, Kyle, everybody tells me that when you leave college, it's the last time for us to reach people. Like college is the last time people come to pay the Christ. He goes, I think it's us, not them. He said, I think it's that we stop sharing after college, not that people stop believing after college. He said, I'm seeing the same response from my coworkers as I did on the college campus. I just realized I haven't been faithful for the last 10 years. And it's like, well, why aren't we faithful? We'll get into that next week with Moses, but it's like, we're afraid. And, and here's my friend, he's stepping out, he's seeing fruit. People will believe. So he says this, verse 20, God makes these promises. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. 
but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So interestingly enough, the first two chapters don't end very hopeful. A little bit, chapter two, God's seeing, God's hearing, we don't see anything. Here, God promises fruitfulness. God promises success. God promises victory. And what's amazing is God, God is the only being on earth with 100% certainty who can say, I will. And what we can see through all of redemptive history is that God actually came through on all of his promises. I mean, God said, I'm going to come down and bring them up. And you know what? He does that in the book of Exodus, but even more substantially and more powerfully, he does that in Christ. That Jesus Christ comes into the world, and just like in the burning bush incident where what God does is focus his attention on himself, he says, I am who I am. Jesus Christ, and check me on this, this is the truth though, Jesus Christ is the only major world religion, the only major world religious figure who is self-centered, self-directed, and self-focused in all of his teaching. Confucius points away to other people. Buddha points away to other people. Muhammad points away to other people. Every other religious leader points away from himself to either another person or other principles. Jesus is the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the only one who throughout the Gospel of John has a bunch of I am statements, which would have reminded people back of the I am who I am. In every statement that Jesus tells us about himself, he's really telling us something about ourselves, right? If he says, I'm the bread of life, what does that mean? You're hungry. That's what that means spiritually. If he says, I'm the door, it's like, you need a way in. I'm a shepherd, you're the sheep. This is what God's doing. He's telling us who he is. In fact, at one point in John chapter eight, he says, before Abraham was, he's saying this to a bunch of people, he says, I am. It's a direct reference. He's connecting himself and associating himself with Yahweh. He gives us an even more specific name, Jesus. He says, if you wanna know God's name, let me tell you God's name, it's Jesus. And the promise throughout scripture is that, you know what, the name of Jesus is so powerful that at the name of Jesus, every knee one day will bow and every mouth one day will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus Christ is so powerful because what a name is, is it's like, what, what is the name of Jesus? It represents who he is and what he's done. And so the name of Jesus is like, here's what it says. If you believe, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved that you can at any moment, at any place, call on the name of Jesus and be saved. And some of you, that's what you need to do because you're not ready to stand before God. None of us are. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to prepare ourselves. We need to say, Jesus, I need you to stand in front of God for me. That's what he did at the cross. He said, I will take your punishment. I will die in your place and I will rise from the dead. The rest of us, we need to make decisions to turn aside in our lives. What does it look like to turn aside, to make a commitment daily and weekly in your life to turn aside to the Bible? We don't have a bush. We have a Bible. And finally, where is God calling you to be sent? Where, where do you know God's saying, I want to work in your school. I want to work in your neighborhood. I want to work in your family. Come, I will send you. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to respond right now. If there's anyone in this room who said, I want to give Jesus my heart right now. I want to give him my sin and myself. I, I, I don't understand everything, but when I look to the cross, I believe that what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago counted for me. 
I believe that God rose him from the dead. I believe I can have a relationship with God because of what Christ has done. If you've never given your heart to the Lord before, if you've never repented and believed and you want to do that for the first time tonight, would you raise your hand? Would you raise your hand if you say, I want to give Jesus my heart and myself for the first time tonight? For the rest of us, what would it look like to say, Lord, where are you sending me? When we are leaving here, we are going somewhere. Lord, we thank you that you didn't just send other people. You actually ultimately sent yourself. You ultimately came down to bring us up. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.